welcome everybody. Today is a special day. We have Dr. Dennis Stover with us, who is uh, incredibly um, successful in the field of in situ recovery in the uranium space. Uh, and he is here to talk to us today about his background and ISR. Well, it's it's good to see you, Janet. And uh, it's another lovely day in the neighborhood here. So oh, excellent, excellent. And we find you in your home office. Um, thanks for joining us. We we've known each other for for quite a while, and I'm I'm really excited to uh, to hear your story. Um, we're on the Mining in America podcast, and um, yeah, but we'll just jump right into it. So. Dr. Dennis Stover, a, a very accomplished uh, professional in the field of in situ recovery technology, correct? That is, you know, I've been involved with uh, in situ uranium recovery, you know, and as I say, primarily uranium uh, recovery for almost 50 years now. And it, my involvement really dates back to the uh, first part of the 1970s, uh, shortly after the start of the first energy crisis. Uh, when the price of gasoline escalated overnight and there were lines at the pump and everything. And at that point in time, uh, I joined Atlantic Richfield's uh, Production Research Center as a research engineer. It was a time when all of the oil companies, at least in North America, were uh, beginning to very aggressively look for alternate sources of hydrocarbon production, things like uh, oil, sh oil shale uh, in um, uh, Colorado tar sands in the Athabascan area, uh, expanded coal production in the western parts of the United States. And I actually initially was engaged to uh, begin working on some research projects dealing with the Athabasca tar sands. But at the same time, uh, coincidentally, you know, we saw the first real growth in nuclear electric power generation uh, worldwide, and particularly in the U.S. And uh, at that time, the major oil companies, a number of them, as part of this effort to look for alternative sources of energy, recognized that, they, uh, in particularly in South Texas, that they may have uh, access to uh, uh, uranium deposits because the uh, leasing structure for oil and gas in, in Texas was typically structured as oil, gas, and other minerals. So the uh, leasor had access to everything and as a result, Atlantic Richfield, along with Exxon, Mobil, and some of the other major oil companies, uh, began to look at how to extract uh, uranium, uh, both by convention, particularly initially by conventional mining. But what we found in South Texas, where we have essentially several hundred feet of just, if you will, a bucket of sand, uh, no consolidated uh, lack of, uh, if you will, uh, rock mechanics and sufficient strength to uh, justify uh, traditional underground mining, began to look for alternative methods. And one of them was the idea of taking advantage of the expertise of the oil industry, particularly the reservoir engineers, and their understanding of fluid flow and porous media, understanding of fluid flow underground, uh, all related to primary and tertiary and secondary oil and gas recovery. It was an, a natural uh, fit. And that, when I was at Atlantic Richfield, shortly after I got there, 
they were involved with a pilot uh, test in South Texas of, of in-situ uranium recovery. Um, they were not the operators, but we were providing, uh, my boss and I were uh, providing technical support for the uh, for this pilot operation. And, um, you know, it was a learning process and the uh, pilot operation turned out to be very successful. And, and this was in 1974, early 1975. Atlantic Richfield had an option in June of 1975 to become the operators of the project. They exercised the option and immediately made the decision and announcement that they were gonna go commercial. Because at that time, the price of uranium was beginning to take off. There was a, a worldwide recognition that the supply was not keeping up with the demand for the new power plants. So uh, while you talk about being in the right place at the right time, uh, all of a sudden we're uh, charged with putting together uh, the technical plans for wellfield development and the development of the commercial operation. And of course, regulatory requirements were somewhat different then. And we were able to get commercial permits in less than a year. And wow. in the following year, uh, Atlantic Richfield as the operator, we initiated the Clay West project, which was the first commercial uranium in situ project in the Western world. And um, we went forward from there. And um, amazing, uh, amazing. Yeah, you know, time. Yeah, and 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 you know, so many things are coming to mind. Like you know, the ability to get a permit in a year, um, the impact that uh, taking quick action did to change uh, the, the the process for extracting uranium in the world. So oh. now, cut away to 2023, 56% of all uranium mined in the world is in situ recovery now? That's correct, yes. It is well over 50%. Um, the chemistry or the, the process uh, varies from country to country. Here in the United States, we have, uh, from day one, focused on the use of uh, an alkaline or neutral pH uh, um, leaching fluid or lixivian, as the fancy word is. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in Australia and in Asia, uh, they tend to utilize a, an acidic solution. Um, in, in many cases there, the uh, areas, are, the um, reservoirs they're mining in are not... Uh, do not contain suitable drinking water um, or water that could be treated to be potentially made into drinking water, meet drinking water standards. Whereas in, in uh, the US, uh, we take, uh, we deal with sometimes brackish water, but water that's, that's useful for agriculture at least in, mm -hmm. in uh, livestock. And so we're much more careful about our choice of lixivians and how we go about it. And yeah. we're required at the end of the operation to return the water to the same use category um, that it had prior to the uh, introduction of the in-situ uh, recovery process. You know, I, I wanna go into the environmental benefits because they're numerous and, I, yeah. and mining in America, it sounds like it's there's more environmental benefits because of the lixivians, the fancy word that you use. Um, that that we use uh, here in America, but, but let's talk about the economics first, because that that was something that I understand from my conversations with you 
um, wasn't understood initially that um, conventional mines thought this would be good for little, little projects or little miners. But the economics you were able to prove up very quickly were far superior to conventional mining, correct? In most cases, um, but not in all cases. You know, okay. there's some very high-grade conventional deposits, particularly in uh, Canada, that are very competitive cost-wise. Um, you're right. You're correct in your saying that initially, particularly conventional miners looked at in-situ recovery as a secondary mining method. You know, if you can't go uh, create an underground mining operation or an open pit or open cast situation, well, then it's okay, let's try this stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, that in part resulted from the fact that the, the academic disciplines involved in in-situ recovery are different. Uh, we're not, uh, uh, you know, most of the people are not characterized with degrees in conventional uh, as conventional mining engineers. Uh, it's very typical. It's an interdisciplinary area. You have hydrologists, you have reservoir engineers, um, mm -hmm. chemical engineers, process engineers. It's a, a more diverse back, uh, field. Yeah, and, and to me, that's probably why this came out of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of the conventional mining industry, right? That That's absolutely the case. The uh, those of us that came from the oil and gas industry, which were numerous, um, you know, had backgrounds in the uh, appropriate technologies, particularly, as I said earlier, with the uh, understanding of uh, fluid flow uh, underground between wells and among wells, and um, it fit in very, very nicely. And uh, the large oil companies in particular had existing computer models to deal with uh, how the fluid would move through these uh, aquifer systems. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 an understanding of the fact that it can flow through them, um, as opposed to the conventional mining, which is more of a remove it and process it outside of the ground. You're basically processing it in the ground in a simplistic way, right? Yeah, that's exactly the case. So, you know, there's no excavation here. Um, what we do is we install a series of wells, um, you know, and they're typically um, very similar or almost identical to water wells that, uh, you know, the local rancher or farmer would have for their own sources of water in that uh, the casing material is probably PVC or fiberglass. Uh, the difference is our wells are sealed uh, at shallower depths so that there's absolutely no chance for our leaching fluid to move into any uncontrolled area or unmonitored area. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and the and the environmental benefits are huge uh, if uh, you're fortunate enough that your deposit will allow in situ recovery, correct? Right, and we should revisit the, we should uh, talk a little bit about the, the characteristics of a deposit that are necessary for ISR. But you're absolutely right. Uh, as I said, there's, there's no excavation um, we, we install a series of wells. It's the, uh, any disturbance both on the surface or subsurface is temporary. It, we may, uh, you know, within a half a dozen to a dozen years after the mining is complete, uh, the groundwater is restored, the wells are sealed, any uh, 
uh, issues with surface have been cleaned up and restored, and the land has returned to the uh, original landowners. And uh, as we see in Texas and Wyoming, uh, they can resume resume their farming activity, the same farming activities, or return to livestock grazing, all the activities they had beforehand. And uh, it's as if we were never there. So one of the things that I've heard that I, I've tried to communicate to people about this is uh, the use of, of groundwater in the, in the in-situ recovery process. Often you're using exempted aquifers, correct? That are already, like they've got uranium in them. They, you can't use this for drinking water. So, I, you know, I mistook that for saying, well, you're actually doing some form of reclamation. But even when you're done, it still contains a lot of other metals that can't does it doesn't make it usable for drinking water am, am i correct <laughs> that's a tough one isn't it <laughs> no the um begin with there are federal regulations uh, associated with the clean water act and uh, subsequent federal legislation that allows certain portions of aquifers to be exempt from existing any other standards for specific uses. Mm -hmm. And that is what happens in the case of these, in the immediate area where you have a uranium deposit that is located in a, a water bearing sand. Okay. Quality of that water, as you alluded to ahead of time, is not suitable for drinking because it does contain naturally elevated concentrations of uranium, and it may have elevated concentrations of a number of other metals, simply because the uranium, you have that natural deposit there, and it, it's active with the groundwater, and it will, some of it will dissolve. So the water, will, it may meet standards, as I said earlier, for irrigation, perhaps, or for livestock, but the exempt criteria in theory, allows you to not have to return that water to its original conditions. But in fact, the state and federal regulations do require that we return, independent of that so-called aquifer exemption, we are required and we do, in fact, return that water to the same use category that it had prior to mining. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm not aware of any any ISR operation that's ever actually worked in a true drinking water aquifer. You know, the water quality is very good, but it doesn't, again, because of the existing metals content of the water, mm -hmm. it is not qualified as a suitable drinking water source under federal regulations before the mining. And I think I get the importance of, of ISR and in in uranium extraction so uranium went through a real lull over the past number of years i know you've worked internationally but why why hasn't there been a, a, more of, of a movement to embrace nuclear i love that it's happening now but why did it take so long <laughs> well part of the reason in terms of of the development and commercialization of uranium, of ISR for uranium, 
Um, it's gone hand in hand uh, with mark with ups and downs in the market uh, for uranium. You know, as as has has conventional uh, uranium mining as well. Uh, we've gone through. One of the interesting things was that all of this development was initiated, as I said, in the beginning in the mid 1970s and through the late 1970s. There was a tremendous escalation in the amount of uh, ISR development efforts for uranium, both in Texas and in Wyoming and to a lesser extent in New Mexico. Um, and that was really driven by the fact that the uranium prices had taken off. It had gone from like $7 a pound to $25, $30 a pound with the expectation that it was going to go to $100 a pound. So both conventional and ISR mining was really a focal point. You know, very similar to what we see going on in oil and gas every time there's a big uptick. When, when oil hits 50 or, or when oil hits 75 or $80 a barrel, you know, people get pretty excited about it. The same thing here. But in um, the early 1980s, there were some major oil, uh, major uranium discoveries in Australia and Canada, which uh, led to the perception that we were going to be in a situation with oversupply. The price of uranium collapsed. Um, conventional mining, with the exception of these new deposits that were found, uh, kind of came to a halt, screaming halt. And what happened with ISR was it was really an interesting time because our cost structure came under great scrutiny. And we learned a great deal probably between 1980, 1980 and 1983 or 84 about how to optimize, how to minimize operating costs and, and capital costs. And that really laid the groundwork for the future of ISR being extremely economically uh, competitive and uh, in the emerging industry as the prices once again took off. And, and now you're at a very exciting time uh, in your role at, at Encore Energy, uh, both as the chief technical officer and, and a director of the board, where this renaissance is, is happening and appreciation for the need for nuclear and environmentally and economically solid uh, extraction, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. It's an exciting time, particularly. We see the uh, pending emergence of these small uh, modular reactors, which uh, uh, provide a whole new source and of, of ability to generate electricity for uh, areas that had not been exposed to maybe maybe off the, the major grids and stuff and the great opportunities there and worldwide recognition that as we strive for to in, improve on clean energy sources that nuclear is an, a key role you're just not going to do it with solar and wind by by themselves or the limited amount of hydropower that's available You've got yeah. to have nuclear in there for the 24-7 base loads that uh, everybody needs. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and I, I, there's a lot of talk about replacing fossil fuels. It's, it's going to be a part of our life. Um, but it's, it's, it's nice to have uh, nuclear as a component of the, the package. Um, I'm, I'm concerned when I see what's going on with the wind farms off of uh, the coast of New Jersey. 
Um, we won't, we get, we'll, we'll, I won't ask you your opinion on that. That's my opinion, <laughs> but, but um, I, I see from, you know, the uh, non-technical side, the value of nuclear. 